0: By the way, we were able to be here last week. My wife and I are gone a lot because I speak in other churches. But uh, I heard Connor's message last week, and it was a great message, brother. I really, really appreciate that. Appreciate being here today. Uh, some of you might know. If you don't, uh, we're a part of a network of churches over 500 churches in the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, and Northern Idaho, and. Uh, I, I work with all of those churches. Next week, I'll be in Everett, uh, north of Spokane, the week following Spokane, the week following that, that in Bothell. So that's what I, where my wife and I are mostly on Sundays, but we're always grateful when we can be here with, uh, here with you. But I do wanna give you just a little update on what God's doing through the network of churches of which we're a part. Because some of you know, some of you may not know, that because of the way we work together, we have missionaries, right here in the Northwest that we employ to help start churches and work with churches and work with our pastors. And because of that, we're able to reach people of all the various languages present in the Northwest. For example, uh, many of you have prayed for and certainly you're aware of the war in Ukraine and what's happening now between Russia and Ukraine. What you may not know is 15 of our churches that we're a part of are Russian and Ukrainian churches. And uh, you've been helping those churches, helping those churches as they receive refugees here in the Northwest, also as they do ministry in Ukraine. One of our pastors who's actually in Vancouver, just returned from Ukraine last week. And we helped him uh, and others over the past, you know, 10 months or so of about $25,000, collectively our churches have, to uh, to do all kinds of various things to help the suffering people in Ukraine. For example, we bought $5,000 uh, worth of generators that were distributed with uh, since Christmas uh, to people who don't have electricity in Ukraine. And that's what this pastor and his team were doing, and you were a part of that, though you didn't even know that. But it's, it's wonderful to be a part of a, of a network of churches like we are that can reach all of the various peoples who are here no matter what language they speak. By the way, anybody want to guess what is the second most common language to English among our churches in the Northwest? Anybody know? Korean. Korean. Kore- you said Korean or Spanish. Actually, Spanish may have caught Korean. So we have 40 Korean language churches. I think now we have about 40 Spanish language churches. Actually, last year, 23 new churches were launched, and half of those, actually probably 12, were Spanish. That's the first time more Spanish churches and English churches were started in a single year. So we have 40 uh, Korean, 40 Spanish, like as I said, about 15 Russian and Ukrainian. Uh, by the way, the Russian language churches are majority Ukrainian. Ukrainian people often, but they worship in Russian so they can reach the former Soviet Union. Uh, We have a lot of Vietnamese churches. We're often in, Christmas I was in a Vietnamese church. We have about a dozen of those, but we also have Mandarin Chinese, Cantonese Chinese, Japanese, several Burmese languages, and a lot of other languages. Now, the reason we're, we're able to do that is because of the way we work together. No, no one church, not even a mega church, not even a huge church, could reach all of these various languages. You have to have the spiritual giftings that's present in, uh, in several hundred churches like we have. And I say all that to say you're a part of that, and you're a part of so much more, so thank you for that. Now, one of the things that my wife and I have done over the years in raising our children and, sub and, and post-children, we've done a lot of mission stuff. Most recently, we've been going to Myanmar. We've been there several times. And, uh, but when our kids were growing up, we took them to Mexico. We took them to uh, Peru, took them to Bangladesh. That was probably the biggest trip. Uh, they'd both been to China. We wanted our kids, and one of our kids is a member of, of the church, Rhett over here, and his wife, Jessica. But we wanted our children to, uh, to know that God loves them and to know that God loves all people and that it really makes a difference whether you know Jesus or not. And we wanted them to see what life was like in a, Christi- in a world and in a country where most people didn't know Jesus. And we wanted them to know how to share the gospel, both here and there. And so we did trips all over the world. And one of those trips I, came back to me a few months ago when I was talking with a youth pastor. And this youth pastor was telling me about some of the issues that the teenagers in his church are dealing with. And they're dealing with all of the issues that you've been hearing about on the news. Those of you who have grandkids or children, your kids have dealt with these most likely, but he said the transgender issue, the homosexuality issue. If it's not present in the youth group, they have friends. Uh, Critical race theory in which you're regarded as a victim or oppressor based on the color of your skin. Not anything you personally have done, just, just, just the color of your own skin categorizes you in some way and he said his kids are dealing with all of these things and as he was telling me that it reminded me of a man that I met in Bangladesh several years ago and my youngest son Luke was with me Paula would take one boy and I would take a boy and we'd switch boys every other day and what we did was we responded to those who answered an ad in the newspaper saying that they would receive the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, which Muslims, and these are majority Muslim people, they believe Moses was a prophet. They believe in those first five books. So what we would do is take the books, and then we would share Jesus from Genesis or Exodus. And the very first day, the very first man we spoke with was a man named Amit. And Amit, as it turned out, could speak very good English, had a wonderful conversation with him, shared Jesus with him. And after maybe an hour, he said, if I do what you want me to do, I might get killed. And so that transitioned our discussion to, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth suffering for And is Jesus possibly even worth dying for? That encounter I was reminded of in talking to this youth pastor because I really believe that one of the great discipleship questions that you have to help your children answer and your grandchildren, the kids who grow up in this church, everybody really in our country, The question we have to help them answer is, is Jesus worth losing my friends, losing my job, my career? Really, there are two primary questions. The first is, is Jesus Lord? Is Christianity true? Is what we preach and believe and live, is this the truth? And if it is the truth, is it a truth worth giving your life for. Now, you understand, we live in the United States, and so not many give their lives for Jesus here physically, though around the world, this is a very practical question. It's very practical in Bangladesh. It's practical in Afghanistan or North Korea, China, many places around the world. I was talking with uh, a person who's a member of our church, and I'm not going to say this person's name, because they're a public school teacher, not in this school, not in this town, but a nearby town. And he said that there was a discussion among the faculty last year in which uh, a parent requested the books and the subject matter that the children were being taught. This is a middle school. It's where this person teaches. And he said, in the faculty meeting, all of the teachers agreed, we have, they have no right for us to give them that list. We don't have to tell them. And our church member spoke up and he said, oh, yes, we do. They're the parents. They have every right to know everything that their children are being taught. And he said, no one else joined him in that argument. But he was fingered As the Christian. And it's affected his relationships. And he had to weigh whether or not Jesus is worth it. And by the way, whether those kids are worth it too. I was talking with a pastor in a small town of 2,700, smaller than ours, and his his wife is a first grade teacher. Last year, she had a boy whom this year in the second grade says he is a girl. It's a very small town, very small school. And so he said they have to deal with that. And they have to make sure they use the right pronouns and the names, and the bathroom is open to whichever one he chooses to use. And all the children have to deal with that, and the teachers, and the community, and the parents. And they're trying to sort this out. This, this is the strange new world in which we live. And more importantly, in which your children live. By the way, I brought a book with me. I just finished it yesterday. If you're interested, if you like to read, and you really want to know the background to this and some of the things that we can do, strange new world, Carl Truman, outstanding little book. Tell you a lot more than I'm going to tell you today. But I will say this, the principalities and the powers of darkness are discipling your children. That is a frightening thought, but it's absolutely true. And the question is, are we going to disciple them? in knowing that Jesus Christ is true and that he's worth it. I was in Eugene a couple months ago, and a teacher came up to me and said that she was recently in a conference on equity and inclusion, and she said that the the trainer, right out of the bag, the very first statement that the trainer made to this public school system was that the Adam and Eve story and the idea that there are two genders is the greatest hoax ever perpetuated upon humanity? And that was the way they began. This is our world. Now, it's important that you understand we're not the first to have to ask the question is Jesus worth it? We're not the first to wrestle with the truth of the gospel and whether Christianity is true, and whether Jesus is worth suffering for. From the very beginning, Christians have had to confront and answer that question. And I want to take you to the Gospels this morning, the Gospel of Luke. And a passage in chapter 21, it's a passage in which Jesus helps those very first followers answer the question as to whether following him— in the midst of everything that they were about to experience would be worth it because by the way when i grew up it's luke 21 if you find your way there when i grew up i didn't consider that if that i could work for a company that would be so woke a large company now you know businesses in america today are going this direction let alone schools and universities and it never occurred to me that the world, that much of the world would point their finger at me as a follower of Jesus and say, you're the problem. But, but that's where we are. You understand that, that, that many Today, unlike even 15 years ago, many today point their finger at you and point their finger at the church and say, you are the problem. You are not the solution. You are the problem. But we're not the first. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 5, we're going to read several verses. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. But this was spoken just days or at most weeks before the cross, before Jesus died on the cross. Verse 5, Luke 21. As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he, Jesus, said, These things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven but before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you they will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name this will give you an opportunity to bear witness therefore Make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. Now, this passage is the most debated passage by scholars in the New Testament or in the Gospels. And the reason being is that Jesus is dealing with two separate things in these two or three chapters. He's dealing with the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in just 40 years, and the destruction of the temple. This is about 30 A.D. when Jesus is speaking. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So partly he's dealing with that, but he's also dealing with the end times, right before the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And it's not always clear, is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which has already happened, or is he talking about that which one day will happen? And so it requires some humility when you're looking at the details of this text, trying to sort out the timing of the specifics. What we do now know, however, is that whether you're in 30 AD or 130 AD or any year subsequent to that, believers have had to deal with the same issues that Jesus speaks of. Suffering on behalf of Jesus' name. And that's what he's dealing with here. Now, there is a suffering that everybody endures, but he's specifically dealing with persecution. What do you suffer because of your allegiance to me? Now, in the book of Acts, we see that suffering begin. You see it in Acts chapter 3 and 4 when Peter and John healed the beggar at the gate and they were arrested in Acts chapter 4 and flogged. And And then you see it in Acts chapter 7 when, when Stephen is stoned to death. Maybe you know the history of the early church well enough to know the emperor Nero When Rome burned in 64 AD, he blamed the church. He blamed Christians. And so Nero gathered up believers and and, and killed many of them. By the way, when you read the book of Romans, there's 27 names at the end of the book that Paul greets by name that are members of the church in Rome. And whenever I read Romans and read that list of names, I wonder who among those died in Nero's persecution. Famously, a secular historian said that Nero took some Christians and used them as candles, human candles in his garden. Paul died in Nero's persecution. He was beheaded. Peter died in Nero's persecution, crucified upside down. So what Jesus said was going to happen did, in fact, happen to Peter and to almost everyone who was listening to him on that day. They, most all of them, except John, died as martyrs. And then in the second century, Justin Martyr and the apologists of the second century, they dealt with this very same thing. Interestingly, they were living in a world not so unlike us. In the second century, they were in a world that really suspected the church, did not trust the church, thought that Christians were not good citizens and just didn't understand the gospel at all. And the the apologists of the second century, they argued, oh, no, they said Christians make the best neighbors. They're the best workers. They're They're the most loving people. They're the ones that take care of each other. By the way, the fellowship of the church and the worship and witness of the church together is probably our strongest witness to the world. The community of the church and loving each other and taking care of each other. Historically, that's certainly been true. The greatest theologian after Paul leading up to Martin Luther was Augustine. And one of the most important books ever written, The City of God, was written after 410 A.D. when Rome was sacked by the Viscoth barbarians. Rome had not been taken in almost 800 years, and when Rome was sacked in 410 A.D., the pagan elite blamed the the Christians, said that Christians were not good citizens, that they wouldn't fight in the military, which was wrong, that they wouldn't fight well because Jesus said turn the other cheek, and if you turn the other cheek, you can't be a good warrior. And so they said, The problems in the empire was because of the church. And Augustine wrote The City of God, one of the five most important books ever written, to refute that fact. He said, actually, Christians do serve in the military. Actually, Christians are the best of citizens, and we need to be. And he said, the problem with Rome is we lost our sense of righteousness and justice long ago. But I say that to say it's always been true that those who don't know Jesus and leaders who don't know Jesus point their fingers at those who do know Jesus and say that you are the problem, you are not the solution. Why? Because our values are so very different than theirs. Thomas Jefferson famously said, it does no injury to me if my neighbor believes in 20 gods or no God, it doesn't pick my pocket or break my leg, <laughs> whether they believe in 20 gods or no God. Now, Jefferson could say that over 200 years ago. Today, however, we're often told, if you use the wrong pronoun, it's like punching him in the nose. <laughs> If you use the wrong word or if you harbor the wrong idea of truth, it's violence because you're a bigot and you're hateful if you don't embrace. You understand it's not live and let live, it's you have to embrace and agree with lifestyles and ideas that conflict with Scripture. Well, what does the text say? There's four things I want to just briefly point out that I think are really important. Number one is persecution is extremely personal. We're not talking about the government here. We're talking about, and Jesus is talking mostly, about family, friends, neighbors, people that we know. I was in a church in Corvallis, and a student came up to me, college student, and he said, I came to faith in Jesus last year. I went home at Christmas and told my parents, and they kicked me out of the house. He said, thankfully, I had a friend, and his parents let me spend Christmas with them. He said, pray for me. My family doesn't know Jesus, and they hate the fact that I now do. That's persecution. That's the kind of, that, that's what Amit in Bangladesh was fearful of. He wasn't fearful of the Bengali government. He was fearful of his wife's family, mostly. Persecution is mostly very personal. It can be systemic, meaning from the government, but it's mostly very personal. And even if it's systemic from the government, how does the government find out you're harboring views that they may not agree with? It's because your neighbor or your child or someone informs on you. Isn't that what happened in Soviet Russia? And it happens around the world even today. So persecution's very personal. The other thing is, Jesus said, it gives you the opportunity to bear witness. In fact, it's really quite remarkable because because Jesus said, not only will you have the opportunity to bear witness when they lay their hands upon you, but you don't even have to determine now what you will say on that day, because the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. I will instruct you, Jesus said, on precisely what to say on the day when persecution comes. Now, that depends on whether or not you have a walk with Jesus and know Jesus. But we see that in the book of Acts. You see it in chapter 7. I mentioned Stephen being stoned to death, but if you know the chapter, you know that Stephen gave a beautiful, elaborate presentation of Christ before they killed him. And we've seen it throughout history. The remarkable witness of the people of God in the midst of suffering and persecution. And then the final truth of our text, which answers the big question, is Jesus worth it? The final truth is, no matter what they do to you, even though some of you, not all, some of you, he says, will die, even though that be the case, know this, not a hair of your head will perish. And if they can't even pluck a hair from your head in any permanent fashion, they can't touch your soul, they can't touch your spirit, no power in this world can sever you from the love of God. We just sang about that. Neither height nor depth, neither angel nor demon, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus is building strength and building character into these men who will suffer incredibly By reminding them that nothing that can be done to you will undo the work of God which has been done in you. Now, the text says not everybody's going to be persecuted. Not everybody's going to be killed. Some. He specifically uses the word some. Some of you will die. They will kill some of you, verse 16. Not everybody, but apparently it is the will of God that you and I live with a sense of uncertainty about how life on this earth is going to end for us. What's tomorrow going to bring? We don't know. There's always been risk in anything you do in life, including obeying Jesus. There's always been a risk. And as Christians, we live with certainty and we live with uncertainty. What certainty do we have? Well, our certainty resides in the person of Christ, his death on the cross for our sins, the fact of his resurrection. We don't don't believe in a philosophical resurrection. We believe in a historical, literal death and resurrection from the dead. And the ascension of Jesus back to heaven, witnessed by Peter, James, and John and others. And the coming again of Christ. And the Bible tells us when Jesus comes again, the trumpet will sound, the angel will shout, the dead in Christ will rise. And after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And there we will be with the Lord forever and forever. Our hope, we're we're not optimistic people, you understand? We're not Pollyanna. We're a people of hope. We're not optimistic that things are going to get better. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. That's the uncertainty with which we live. But we do have hope. And our hope takes us through life and into the next life. That's our certainty. But then there is the uncertainty. In fact, I was talking to a guy this week who's just retired recently. And so he's getting up there in years a little bit. And he told me, he said, I I don't want to live to see it happen. I, I don't want to know. I don't want to see what's going to happen with my grandkids. He said, I want to go home to Jesus. And I don't want to have to live to see it. Well, I understand that. That's not the right attitude. No. The right attitude is you want to engage and you want to be intentional with those grandkids. And you want to help them love God and know that Jesus is worth it. You want to pray for them. But I understand in this world of uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen to your kids and grandkids and the world yet to come, It's kind of tough at at times, but it's always been that way. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is of Jonathan. Jonathan, who's King Saul's son, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 14. They're fighting the Philistines. God told them to annihilate the Philistines. But King Saul is under a tree with 600 soldiers And the Philistines are camped out yonder, and Saul was not taking the fight to the Philistines. His son Jonathan, with his armor bearer, looked uphill at 20 Philistines. And Jonathan believed that God wanted him to take the fight to the Philistines. And his armor bearer said, I'm with you, (laughs) do whatever you think God tells you to do. And Jonathan threw out the fleece, to determine whether God wanted him to wait for the Philistines to come to him or whether God wanted him to attack uphill, which any soldier would know that's a tough thing to do. And Jonathan became convinced that he was to attack uphill. And when he did, he routed the Philistines. He killed all of them. And that little victory sent such a panic in the Philistine camp that they went into a tizzy and a turmoil, and they began to turn on each other and kill each other. And when Saul and the other Israelite soldiers saw what was going on, they joined the fight. But not only that, the text says that there were Israelites hiding in the rocks, fearful of what was going on, and they came out of the rocks, and they too joined the fight. But not only that, there were Israelites who had joined the Philistines, thinking the Philistines were going to win the battle, and so they had switched sides. But now when they saw the Philistines were in turmoil and Israel was winning the battle, they switched sides once again in the fight against the Philistines. One man with faith and courage doing what God told him to do turned the day. And thousands and thousands of people joined that fight. Now, I love that story because my favorite quote in the story is Jonathan said, perhaps the Lord will do something. He, he, he believed this is what God wanted him to do. He didn't know for certain how it would turn out. And so he said, perhaps the Lord will do something. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And on that day, the Lord saved. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know the day came when Jonathan was in a fight with the Philistines and they killed him. In fact, they killed his dad, Saul, some of the other family, a lot of the Israelites. We don't know how or why God allowed that to happen. Maybe because alive Jonathan would be a problem for King David if he was the living son of Saul. We don't know. But Jonathan understood. You can live. You can die. But if you're obeying Jesus, if you're obeying God, all right either way certainty and uncertainty it's the way we live our lives and yet we're hopeful because we know how all this will end so what do you do I think the great discipleship question of our day for our kids is really two. Is Jesus Lord? Is the gospel true? And is Jesus worth suffering for? Now, I think you have to do everything you can to build that into the hearts of your kids. This church is your partner in that. But face it, the kids are in church, what, an hour a week? <laughs> They're in school, what, 30 hours a week? and you got them the rest of the time. The job of the church is to encourage and equip and remind us as parents and grandparents that we are to be Christian at home, and not just in church, that we have a responsibility as moms and dads and grandparents to disciple those kids. And you have to fight for those kids. You have have, have to fight for your kids like Braden Lowry, uh, uh, Braden uh, uh, Kendall uh, Cummings fought for his friend Braden Lowry a few months ago in, in Wyoming. I don't know if you heard the story, but but these two men, Kendall Cummings and Braden Lowry, they're college wrestlers. They wrestle together. They're on the same team, and they were out collecting antlers near Cody, Wyoming. And while they were, a grizzly bear came out of nowhere and attacked Braden Lowry, and the grizzly was mauling Braden. And his wrestling partner, Kendall, uh, was throwing things and hollering and yelling and trying to get the, scare the bear away, and nothing was working. So what did Kendall do? He jumped on the bear and grabbed him by the ears. <laughs> now, my image is he took the ears like the reins of a horse, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Probably it was one ear. But he grabbed the bear by the, and he got the bear's attention. And now the bear turned his attention toward Kendall and began to mangle, and both boys, both young men, these were men, (laughs) they were both torn up pretty bad, but they both survived. And Braden Lowry said of his friend Kendall, he will be my best friend for the rest of my life. Someone fights for you. Someone risks their life for you. Yes, best friends for life. I thought that was the ultimate, and then about two weeks after that, that was in October, about two weeks later, there was a boy, eight-year-old boy in India by the name of Deepak, and Deepak got bit by an adult cobra. And Deepak was shaking. He's bit him on the arm, shaking and shaking. And the cobra wouldn't let go. So what did Deepak do? He bit the cobra. (laughs) And then he bit him again so hard, he killed the cobra. (laughs) 50,000 die of snake bites every year in India. But on that day, the snake died and the boy lived. The article didn't say if he bit him on the head. If he did, that's biblical, I think. Crushed the serpent's head, right? (laughs) What do you do when you're under assault, when your loved ones are in danger? You fight back. You do what's necessary. Some people in a life and death situation, they they give up. (laughs) They go limp. That's understandable. That happens. It's not what we want to do. What we want to do is fight back. How does the church fight back? How do you fight for your children? How do you fight for this community? Not just your kids, but the kids who grow up in your neighborhood. You fight by going into your prayer closet and praying down the powers of heaven that God will save these kids and protect them from the evil one. You put on the armor of God. You go into your prayer closet and you pray. And then you take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And you fill your mind and heart with the word of God. And you teach that word, the whole counsel of God's word to your children, your grandchildren, and your family and you base your life on the truth of God's Word. Because when the time of testing comes and your child has to ask the question, do I want to lose a friend? Do I want to lose a job? Do I want to lose my career? Or do I want to disobey Jesus? Maybe, maybe they'll make the right decision if they've been discipled well. tough world. And the question that we have to answer for ourselves and for our children is, is Jesus worth suffering for? Is he worth dying for? There's a verse of Scripture, by the way, in, Mark, in Matthew. And some of you may know this verse, some of you don't. It's in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 18. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10. This is the passage in the chapter in which they're bringing children to Jesus. And Jesus uses a child in verse 4 and says, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus talks about how precious little children are. And then he makes and gives a warning to those who would injure or do harm to a child. And in verse 10, he says this, See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Do you remember that verse? Don't do injury to a child. Why? Because their angel, guardian angel, their angel in heaven continually views the face of my father. Why? Because that angel is operating and working on behalf of that child, your child. That's powerful. It's powerful for us as parents and grandparents It's powerful for anyone who has responsibility to work with children. To be reminded, you mess with the kid, you're messing with God himself. I don't know if I have a guardian angel, I don't know if you do as an adult, but the kids do. I I was reading about in a book by Erwin McManus. He told the story about a girl who grew up in India. Her name was Ruth Friesen. And Ruth, she was a missionary kid, and she was saved when she was eight years of age. And she was baptized in the river. We baptized in the creek. They baptized in the Krishna River. And she said, when I was baptized, the church gathered around me. And they clapped and they shouted and made lots of commotion. She said, I thought they were celebrating my baptism. And then I learned that no, they were keeping the crocodiles away. (laughs) (laughs) She said, it does something to your faith to begin your public faith and life with Jesus by taking a risk. It's a good lesson. It's a good lesson that our kids need to know, that we need to know if we ever seem to forget. There are risks. However, when you know Jesus, the risks are so mitigated as to really become non-existent. Why? Because Jesus said, no matter what happens, remember this, not a hair of your head will be lost. This week, most of you probably witnessed in some measure the amazing story of uh, Damar, Damar Hamlin. A football player who dropped on the football field with cardiac arrest. It was on Monday. It was a day off. I don't usually watch Monday night football. I got home. We were out doing something. I think we had dinner. Got home. I turned on the TV, and everybody was on their knees and gathered around, and there was an ambulance on the field. I didn't see the game. That's what I saw. And then, like you, I learned the story of this man whose heart stopped, 24-year-old man, who by all everything I've read is a fantastic human being. And he hit the ground, and his heart was... And the medical people were there so quickly that he's made this miraculous recovery. And seemingly, he's, he's going to live, uh, and don't know what beyond that, but he's, his mind is there. What was amazing to me was the focus on prayer. It was unbelievable. In fact, because we were in town today, I actually watched Fox News' 9 to 10 o'clock football program. (laughs) And they began the program talking about prayer and the power of prayer. And one person said, prayer always has power. And all this week, on ESPN, one of their sports people prayed, bowed his head and closed his eyes and prayed. And the others there did too. It's really been pretty. I've never seen anything like it in all my life. Almost every day, people talking about the power of prayer, the power of prayer, God answering prayer. One person said whether he lived or died, we know God answers prayer. On ESPN it really pointed out the fact that even if you barely believe God exists when it comes to death you know he's your only hope (laughs) one of my favorite writers who is now dead Charles Krauthammer said and he was a commentator he said I don't know if there is a God he was agnostic He said, I don't know if there is a God, but I fear him. I think what we witnessed this week is a lot of people who aren't too certain about God were quickly brought to understand without God, there is no hope in death. Your kids need to know that. You need to know that. You need to know that Jesus is worth it. There will be suffering. He's worth it. Your kids are going to lose friends. Some of them probably already have. They need to know Jesus is worth it. They're going to lose jobs. We hear about it almost every day. Someone losing a job for their faith. In this country. But they lose their job because they've come to the conviction, Jesus is worth it. That's the world in which we live, but I'm so grateful we have a God to serve who's worth it. And if you don't know this God yet, if you haven't personally come to faith in Jesus, I would urge you and encourage you, don't leave this place today without coming to that personal conviction. If you just need to talk to somebody, talk to Pastor Connor up here, talk to Bevan, talk to me, talk to someone you know and trust before you leave here today about knowing Jesus. It really is pretty simple. It's profound in the most profound way, but it's pretty simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son That whosoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but will have everlasting life. Believing in Jesus, that means committing yourself to Jesus, believing that he is Lord and Savior, and giving him your life, He'll, he'll save you. And you'll have everlasting life. If you're not certain of that today, Become certain before the day ends, please. And I want to pray for you. And uh, after I pray, I think we're going to have some announcements and a song. And, uh, and thank you for being here. And again, if you're here for the first time or the second or third time, God bless you. We are so glad God brought you here today. We're so grateful the Lord brought you to Go Church. We're a new church, about five years of age but God's really blessing our church, and we're happy and grateful that you're here today. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus and all that Jesus Father, thank you that many, many of us have come to the conviction that Jesus is worth everything. I pray especially for those who have not yet arrived at that conclusion those here today who have not yet surrendered their lives to Jesus. Father, may this be the day of their salvation. May in their hearts and mouthing with their lips, may they say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Be my Savior and be my Lord. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, we pray that you would receive joy and blessing through the worship of your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed this sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.